Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everyone. My name is Marion and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you for having me, and I'm going to get the perfunctory thank yous out of the way. So I don't know who Becky is. Is Becky here? Hi, Becky. Becky called and invited me up here tonight, so thank you, Becky. And uh, Jack, the treasurer. Okay, you made all of my arrangements and flights and hotels, so thank you. And uh, and I want to thank my host, Mark. He came in and picked me up Thursday about 1 in the afternoon. And, and I don't know Mark, so I said, well, what do you look like? And he said, a middle-aged white guy. And I'm like, <laughs> that's not going to be hard to find in Seattle, right? <laughs> so when I got off the plane, I turned on my Mandar. And ladies, you know what that is. You go into the bar, you turn on the man radar, and you look for the most desperate one in the room. <laughs> and I'm not saying that Mark is desperate, but <laughs> he told me about this uh, the newcomer who left Clancy at the airport, and so I, I'm sure he didn't want to be there. So there's a little bit of uh, desperation that he found me okay, and uh, so I made a beeline straight to him, and it didn't hurt that he had the orange shirt on, which he told me he was going to be wearing. So, uh, And I thank Mark for picking me up, and, um, and I... I my new friends that I've met, I tell you, how I got here was via um, the Panama Canal. And uh, last November, I went on a cruise, and I met my friend Chris on the cruise. And we had a core group of AA members. It was a 17-day trip, and there were seven of us that met every night at 5 o'clock from 5 to 6. And those people kept their commitment. Now, six out of the seven of us had 20 years and plus, and Chris was our newcomer at two years of sobriety. And every night at 5 o'clock, we all gathered together for an AA meeting, and it helped keep us all, you know, together. And so she asked me if I would come up and speak if I had a talk. And so she invited me up, and so she's hosted me all week. And uh, I have seen your lovely city. It's beautiful. Uh, We had dinner. uh, Don took me out on his boat yesterday. We went all over Lake Washington and had dinner with a group of people, went to an AA meeting, got up this morning, went downtown, rode the Ferris wheel, and watched the fish tossing. And uh, it's been a really beautiful trip, and I have met. And then I went to Mark's sister's house. Debbie, is she here? For a lovely potluck dinner way back there. And uh, so I feel very welcomed here, and I thank you for that. And if you're new, this is the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And while I was on that trip, I also met a guy out of San Diego. His name was Tom, and he was coming up on 30 years of sobriety. And he says, you know, I'm really looking for a new service experience here in AA. And I said, I have an inmate paroling to San Diego. How'd you like to hook up with him? And he said, I would love that. And so he met my guy when he paroled, and and Tom and I talk, and my guy is staying sober, and they talk once a week, and they go to a meeting once a week, and Tom is happy, and my inmate Tim is happy, and, um, you know, and who would have thought that it all all this came from going into the um, Panama Canal, and, and that's how the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous works. So anyway, it's just a small AA world. I'm going to read something that I really like out of the big book and and share with you. It says on page 124 in the family afterwards, it says, and especially because I know there's a lot of family members here, it says, this painful past may be of infinite value to other families still struggling with their problem. 
We think each family which has been relieved owes something to those who have not, and when the occasion requires, each member of it should be only too willing to bring former mistakes, no matter how grievous, out of their hiding places. Showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to happiness, or life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. So my past is my greatest asset. It's not my bank account or my car or that I can go on the Panama Canal. It's but my past. And that's for the newcomer. So you know where I've come from and you know where I'm going and you know where I've been. And so that makes it, and I love that it says, and just showing all these other people how we do it. Because in the forward to the first edition, it says to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the exact purpose of this book. And so when I read that, and I go to a book study, I've been in a book study since I've been sober, and uh, I shared about precisely how we have recovered, because it's italicized, I've been told it's important. And then the newcomer says, you know what I really like? Showing other alcoholics, to show other, other alcoholics. Don't lecture me, don't tell me, show me. And as many times as I'd read that, I'd never seen the word show, to show other alcoholics. So I hope tonight that I can show you what I was like, what happened because of Alcoholics Anonymous, my experience through the steps, and what my life is like today. So um, I uh, grew up in Lancaster. It's desert. It's hideous. It's about an hour north of, Lan of Los Angeles. If you've been there, it's 40-mile-an-hour winds and tumbleweeds blowing through. And It's a place you don't move to, you end up at. And, uh, <laughs> but I grew up there. And it was Jack Daniels and rock and roll, and we had parties all the time out in desert, and I really liked drinking. I liked the way it made me feel. And I come from a weird family. My brother was class president, and my sister was a homecoming princess, and then there was me. And I don't, I don't get along. I loved my sister when she came home. I looked over that bassinet, and I'm like, she is so cute for like a week. <laughs> and then I realized she's getting all the attention. And so now I don't like my little sister anymore. And so I don't really fit into my family. And it was really funny because my parents really knew there was something wrong with me. I was a brownie, a Girl Scout, a campfire girl, a bluebird. I had tap, jazz, ballet lessons, swimming lessons, modeling classes, etiquette courses. And uh, what else did I do? And piano lessons. My parents want me to do something. But I don't like anybody, and I can't do anything. Nothing makes me happy. And my brother is the class president, like I said, and he got he went to college. He got married. He had a family. He's an elected politician in the state of California. My sister went to college, got married, had a family, became an executive in a Fortune 500 company. Then you have me. I've been married three times. I've lived with a couple. I would have married them had I not been married to the other two I was living, you know. <laughs> I've been in and out of jail, and my parents are like, and they don't understand what's wrong with me. And uh, But since I've been sober, I tell you I have the better deal here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I would not change the life that I lived and what I've been given now because of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I grow up in this little town, and I like to drink, and alcohol makes me feel good, and I marry my high school sweetheart. I don't really have much business getting married at 19 because it's all about me. And we moved to the Los Angeles area, and everything. He's that poor guy. Are we going out tonight? You didn't notice my new haircut. What about my new dress? I wanted to go over there. Are you taking me out for dinner? What about me? What about me? What about me? And he's like exhausted. He's always trying to keep up with me. And one night he comes home, he goes, I'm leaving. What? Because I'm perfectly happy here, and he's not happy. He was just like, whew. 
So he left. He, he left on a Wednesday night. I went to work Thursday. I said to the girls, are you going out this weekend? And they said, yeah. And I said, can I go? And they said, sure. And I went out with them on Friday night to a bar, and uh, it was uh, the 80s, and we had Madonna and Shaka Khan, Shaka Khan, and I'm like, oh, my God. I like standing there with a, like a deer in the headlights. I, my first concert was Led Zeppelin, 1977, right? And I'm like scared to death because I don't know anything about this music. And they said, here, have one of these. And it was a Long Island iced tea, and eight Long and iced teas later, Shaka Khan. Woo! I loved it. I loved everything about the bar scene. I loved the smoke, the men, the lights. Makes me taller, thinner, smarter, better. And I feel really good about myself, and I feel really good about you. Because, ladies, if you're a bar drinker, I would go out and I'd go, man, these dudes are ugly. God. A couple Long Island iced teas later, these dudes are so hot. Man, it changes my entire perspective. I loved alcohol. I loved everything about it. And I'm having a really good time as I'm out in the bar scene drinking. And uh, I stayed home one night. I didn't go out and drink. And I started about crying about the loss of the marriage. And I said, forget this. I got up. I got dressed. I, and I went out to the bar. Because alcohol became this great salve in my life. It just took away all those feelings that I don't have about myself. And I don't know how to deal with any of these things and the loss of that marriage or anything else. And so I just drink alcohol. and it makes me feel better. And so my roommate and I are talking, and, and I said to her, I said, Debbie, I think I'm drinking a little too much, and I'm going to cut back after the Halloween party. I've never not thought about not drinking. I'm just going to cut back. But I got arrested on October 30th, 1985, pulling into my garage the night before the Halloween party. And it was a great thing that happened to me because I was sentenced to six AA meetings, a court-ordered therapy group, and a restricted license to and from work, to and from AA. So we always had the rule, whoever was driving had to stay most sober. Obviously, I don't follow that rule, so. And then she'd say, well, it's your night to drive. And I'd say, well, I, I, I can't, but we can take my car. And then it would free me up to drink how I wanted to drink. And I went to one AA meeting, and the guy, he was a skid row drunk who lived in a cardboard box. He got sober, and he became a lawyer. I thought, God, I lived in a box. I'd go to AA, too. I don't identify with that guy. I have no idea how close I come to that cardboard box. And so I went back and told my little hospital therapy group, I go, if I have to suffer through that meeting, at least that guy was funny. They said, better than that, there's a great bar next door. Really? So I walk next door, I put my court card, if you're hearing a court card, you didn't hear it from me. I put my court card in the basket, I went next door to the bar, I ordered a beer, and I played darts. And I didn't hear the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. Things were occurring behind my drinking, and my roommate, Debbie, would say, Marion, I cannot believe you said that to her last night. I said, said what? And she'd tell me. i go, really? Was she mad? She was pissed. I don't really like Chris anyway. I don't care. As my drinking progressed, she goes, Marion, I can't believe you did that last night. I said, did what? And then she'd tell me what I'd do. I'm like, no. She goes, you did. I'm like, oh, my God. At the end of the friendship, it wasn't the end of my drinking. She'd say, get out. I'm like, what? You know what you did? Get out. And I don't know what I did. I'm a blackout drinker. And it scared me, And I, but I can't stop myself from having that drink. And so I come home from work one day on February 1st, 1986, and there's a note from my roommate and says, you scare me, and she moved out. And I was mad. And I was mad because the rent was due. Not because my best friend had moved out of the house. So I did the only thing I could do. I never paid any more rent. And now I have nobody in my life about my drinking, and I drink. I start drinking full-time, and I start drinking around the clock. 
and I'm okay with the way I'm living. You know, um, I ended up losing my job and I'm just drinking in my house and I have a lot of problems going on. And the book says it because they become astonishingly difficult to solve. So I'm drinking and I don't have any power. So I've solved that power. I, you know, I, I've lost the power to my apartment. So I have an extension cord that's thrown up over the balcony that plugs in a stereo, a fan and a lamp. I don't have any hot water. So I just stopped taking showers. I was a smoker at the time, and I would pick those cigarette butts out of that trash can because I can't go to go get myself some new cigarettes. And I'm okay with the way I'm living. The book says our alcoholic life becomes the only normal one we know. And I don't know how I got from where I was to where I ended up, but that's how I'm living, behind alcohol. And I'm living like this, and this is good. And I'm wired up to my neighbor's house to call out to get a Domino's pizza and some Coke once a week because I don't want to be all skinny. So I'm like, and they take checks. So that was good because I got money, but I can't pay my bills. You had to write a check and then get postage and I can't go to the post office to buy it. So I just don't pay any bills. And I'm living like this. And, um, you know, this is how my life has become because of alcohol. And I'm living there and uh, I end up going to jail. I have... Uh, I get arrested on another charge, and I have a drunk driving warrant because I can't make it to jail, because I can't make it to court. And so they finally come, and I get arrested, and then they hold me on my drunk driving warrant, because I got stories why I can't make the last court appearance and why I can't make it. And the, the judge had finally had enough of me, and so I get sent to Civil Brand. It was the women's jail at the time, and, and my friend Paul reminded me. He said, Marion, I knew I liked you when you told me the bus story, and I'm all indignant, and this is my bus story. I said, I had never ever ridden public transportation in my entire life. He says, not that bus. I'm talking about the jail bus story. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that story. <laughs> because what happened was, I'm in jail. And I, they sent me down to Sybil Brand, and I got a ride on the bus, and I don't want to ride with the rest of you bitches. I want my own bus, right? <laughs> so I'm all shackled up, and I keep stepping back and back and back so I can have my own bus. And pretty soon, I'm the last gal standing. I'm like, they're going to bring me my own bus. But they don't. They put me on the men's county bus. And you know you are looking really skanky when you get on the men's county bus and you don't get one cat call. <laughs> it was bad. <laughs> and so I get out of jail after a few days and I come home. I go, somebody picks me up finally and I go party with you for a few days and I come home and I'd lost the keys to that apartment and I used a ladder to get from the alley up over the balcony into my apartment and um, most of my belongings were gone and I start screaming, who stole my stuff? And a neighbor comes out, he said, Mary and your mom and dad were here. Great. Because I don't want to ever have to call mom and dad because you know that's the worst place you got to call. So I pick up the phone, I call my brother and sister-in-law and I said, so <clears throat> I hear mom and dad were at the house and they said, yes. I said, okay. She said, and uh, while they were moving you out, your dad had a heart attack. He's in the hospital right now. See, because my parents, one time my mother had called and said, Mary, we are so worried about you. I said, you know, when you see my picture on TV that says, do you know this girl? Then you worry. Get off my back. My parents broke into this maggot-infested apartment, and there's a notice, an eviction notice from the marshal on my door, but I don't know that because I'm coming over the balcony. And my parents break into my apartment, and because I had food in my refrigerator and freezer that now is spoiled because I had no electricity, has rotted and has collected maggots. And my parents walk in and smell this rotting stench, and they think I'm dead. And they start looking in my apartment for, to find their daughter's body, and they're standing there saying, my God, what has happened to our girl? And it became so overwhelming for my father that he had a heart attack. 
See, because I don't think anybody's being hurt by the way I'm living my life. I don't think anybody is. So I borrow a car because my car has been impounded, and I drive up to see my parents. And I have a whole story about why I'm living the way I'm living, and it's nothing I'm doing. It's because I'm partying too much with you, and it's your fault. And if I wasn't hanging out with her, and Mom, if you ask my neighbors, I wasn't even there. Other people have really taken over my place. I have all kinds of stories why I'm living like them. And I drive back to my apartment down there in Van Nuys, and I'm, and I'm sitting there in the dark, living like I'm living for another week. And finally, my parents come and knock on that door, and they said, Marion, you, you need to come home. You need to come up to Lancaster. You need to get your life in order, and so why don't you come up here? So I have nothing left to take because I have nothing left in that apartment, and I move up to my mom and dad's house. And I have some friends that are... Uh, no, an alcoholic, and they're going water skiing, and they invited me to go water skiing with them. And my parents said, you can go, and I go, and, but I don't go water skiing with my friends. As soon as I get in the back of that Jeep, I crack a beer, and I start drinking, and then I call my biker boyfriend who rides up to Pixley, and I sit in a biker bar all weekend long drinking. I got run out of a town. And I get back, I, I get back just in time for my friends to take me back to my parents' house, and my car that I had got out of impound has now been repossessed. And I walk into my mom and dad's house, and my mom says, Marion, you have been lying all along, and you have two options here tonight. You were either going to go get some help, or we're going to drop you to the streets of L.A., and you decide what you want to do. The book says to die an alcoholic death or to live by spiritual principles are not always easy alternatives to face. Well, I guess I'm going to go get some help. So my parents took me over to AV Hospital. They had an inpatient treatment um, at the time. It was called Road to Recovery. I just found my, my little certificate of completion not long ago in this nice leather little bound thing. And I walk down that hallway. I'm 25 years old, and I'm walking down there with my mom and dad, and there are like seven guys sitting in there. I'm like, oh, God, I hope that's where I'm going. Because my primary purpose were those seven men. It was not about getting sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I meet him while I'm in that treatment center. <laughs> but I'm not alcoholic, so I don't go to AA. I join another fellowship. And they told me to get a sponsor, and they didn't tell me to get one that gave direction. Well, I just got one. I would call her, hey, how's it going? Yeah, I'll see you at that meeting. Bye. Click. Right? And I hook up with that chronic 30-day relapser, but that's going to be okay. Now, in California, we call it hospitals and institutions. Most of uh, this country calls it um, corrections and treatment. Anybody does correction and treatments? Anybody do service work? Thank you, because you are the people that saved my life, and I'm forever grateful for you guys. So they were called hospitals and institutions, and they came up all the time to these book studies, and this woman shared at every book study, and her name was Vicki, and we'd read a paragraph, and she goes, my name is Vicki, I'm an alcoholic, I'd like to talk about this here. <laughs> my name is Vicki, I'm an alcoholic, I'd like to talk about this here. Shut up. My name is Vicki. I'm like, shut up. Hit that broad. Hated her. I don't even know her. She was just nice, and I don't like her. <laughs> and it was the boringest thing I've ever said. At least that guy was funny. These people were boring, and they were like, oh, my God. And all I could think about is him. I'm looking across the room at him. Shh. <laughs> Staring. That's what I've always done. And so that's why it was easy to find Mark. <laughs> Mm, 
And so I hear the 90 meetings in 90 day thing, which is a treatment center idea. The big book says try not drinking a year, but I can't hear that message. I hear the 90 meetings in 90 day because I'm not really alcoholic. And so he and I, I get out of treatment and he and I move in together. And I, yeah, I know. <laughs> and after the night, I, I met this old timer. He just died and he was like 90 some years old. And my mother said to him, what do you do every night? He says, I go to a meeting. And she says, that man has no life. And I go, no, he doesn't. I'm going to do 90 meetings in 90 days and cut back. She says, I think you should. But that's a bad idea for a girl like me. So I did my 90 meetings in 90 days, and I cut back. And that boyfriend came home that I met in treatment came home loaded. And I said, baby, if you're going, I'm going. And I went out and got myself some tequila and spent another eight and a half months out there. <laughs> and it got even worse. And I have a great tequila story. We were down in Mexico on this cruise, and we went on a rappelling thing and down the mountain, and jets are swooping down, and, and we're all having a really good time, and then we're done, and they go, oh, yeah, and then we're going to go to the tequila factory. And Chris's eyes are like the size of saucers, and I'm like, fabulous. <laughs> I love tequila. And then they had the five kinds of tequilas, and they gave about five free shots. I'm like, Nobody ever gave me five free shots of tequila. There was always a price behind that, right? And they went through, and then they have vanilla tequila, and they have amaretto tequila. Did you know that? I didn't know that. And then there's a certain technique on how to drink tequila. So he explains it to the group on how you should drink their tequila before they have their first shot. And they all take that shot, and then they're all like, good. I'm like, what fun is that? Because I want that, and then the catches on fire, and you go, that's what I drank. I like that feeling. And then out these people had five shots of tequila, not one fist fight. Nobody peed on themselves, and everybody kept their clothes on. I was like, these people do not know how to drink. <laughs> so I go out. I start drinking again. And uh, I go out, and I move down to Los Angeles again from my parents' home in Lancaster. And, um, and my psychiatrist from the hospital cut me off a of disability because he knew that I wasn't sober. And I had to get a job, so I talked to a girlfriend and to give me a job at her law firm. And I swear to God, my grandmother died three times. I got stories that people would gather around my desk, generally on Tuesdays, not so much on Mondays. <laughs> and they like gather around, they go, so what happened this weekend? I'm like, oh my God, this guy, he said he was going to shoot his old lady. He brought over seven guns. I've got seven guns in my house. They're like, no. I'm like, yes. They're like, that's crazy. I know. I like your drama. I like my drama. The more drama is, the better I am. I have a good time. And people are gathering around. And so, you know what? I'm living this life. I'm only going to drink on weekends. But then I throw on Thursdays because I don't work that hard on Friday. And then that rolls over to Monday and I can't make it. So I show up on Tuesday. And I've called in sick so many times that I can't even call my employer and lie one more day. You just can't lie one more time. So what I did, I had, uh, I just unplugged the phone from the wall. In those days, it was a plugged-in phone, and I just don't show up to work for three days. And my employer calls the sheriff's department and someone to Hunga and said, we think our secretary has been murdered. <laughs> so they send up law enforcement to my house, and uh, I'm passed out on the couch with that boyfriend. And if you're a good drunk woman like me, you've got bruises all over your arm. And I got this crack under the door, and we're passed out, and there's... I open my eyes, and it's the shiny black boots. I'm like, shh, it's the cops. Well, I'm not answering. And they're not leaving because they think I'm murdered. So we have this standoff. <laughs> Eventually, they get a window open. They use the baton. I faint all this fear. And the cop comes in, him and his partner, and says, so what's going on? 
<laughs> I was down at the grocery store. <laughs> and this guy, he tried to abduct me. <laughs> I give a full description of the guy, the van he's driving. They take a police report. They call my employer, tells them I was assaulted. My employer sends me a bouquet, swear to God, this big, this wide. And it says, take the rest of the week off. So I do. So Monday, I think it's prudent. I show up to my job, right? And I wear just the appropriate clothing to cover the bruises, but loose enough that I could show them to you. So I go into my boss's office. Steve, it was so terrible. And I pull up the sleeve, and I relive the assault. And now I only have two gals left talking to me in that office, because everybody's up to here with my drama. And I relive the assault for them, and they're like, oh, that's terrible. And the cop had given me a card for victim's counseling. And my head says, if you don't go, they're going to know you're lying. So I go get counseling for an assault that never even happened. Because the book says I can no longer differentiate the true from the false, right? Because I believe it to be true. If I believe it, you believe it, you believe it, I believe it. And that's not even what happened. So I'm going to tell you about my last week. Yesterday was my 26th AA birthday. Crazy. <laughs> July 4th weekend, 1987. 1986 of July 4th, I'm in jail. So July 4th weekend, 1987, I have the good idea to go to Mexico with the girls. And I know what happens when I go to Mexico with the girls. I drink tequila. <laughs> and uh, last thing I know is I'm dancing. The next thing I know I come to, I got a black eye, a fat lip, cracked ribs, no panties, parked in the desert, and my money's gone. I'm like, oh, Jesus. I drive back to my hotel. I don't have a key, of course. The maid lets me in. My girlfriends are gone, and their luggage is gone. I'm like, well, they couldn't have gone far. I mean, I drove. So I slept for a couple hours. They still weren't there. I went and laid by the pool. At the end of the day, as the sun's setting, I realized my friends aren't coming back. And I got my stuff, and I went and crossed back over the border, came back to California, and I made a phone call. Seems I got in a fight with my girlfriends in the federales, and I tried to run my girlfriends over. And they had the federales take their, get them to take their luggage and took them to the border where they got a Greyhound bus phone. And then they called my family and said, she's crazy. They thought I was on drugs. To my knowledge, I didn't do anything other than tequila. And I think they just never seen a girl who drinks like me. So, but my head says the next day I, I can have just two. The insidious insanity of the first drink. You can have two. And I have two drinks. The next day, Mary, and you're only going to have two, just two, just two. I had two drinks, and it's good. By the third day, I'm drinking like it's ginger ale. July 11th, 1987 is the night of my last drink. wasn't my worst drink, drunk. It just happened to be my last drink. So I'm on a blind date with Mark. I figured this guy had to be really sad. They're setting him up with me. I'm still sporting a black eye. But I look across the room, and there's Mike the man I've been waiting for my whole life. And I leave my date to go home with another man. And in the minute, moment of doing the nasty, I got a moment of clarity. I'm like, dude, I got to go. He's like, now? <laughs> right now. <laughs> See, because my drinking and my sex conduct went hand in hand. And I can't live this way anymore. And what I did with you people who came on the, carried that message to me while I was in that institution, while I was in that hospital, I kept your numbers in the back of my wallet. 
And when I was ready to get sober, I called them up, and I was living down in L.A., and they were living up in Lancaster. And I said, you know, I'm in trouble. He says, Miriam, why don't you come up here? And I said, I don't have enough gas. He said, if you've got enough gas to get here, we'll get you home. And I walked in. I drove up to Lancaster. I got out of the car. I was meeting him at his job, and I walked into the place, and they said, um, he's at the sandwich shop waiting for you. And he was a big, tall guy, big guy. And uh, I walked into this deli, and uh, there he is. And he stood up when he saw me, and he just held out his arms. And I went running to him, and he held me into his chest, and I just started sobbing. I'll never forget that moment. And he just held me in the middle of this restaurant. He said, Marion, you never have to feel this way again for the rest of your life, one day at a time, if you don't want to. I don't know how I'm not going to drink, but I can't feel this way anymore. I cannot live like I'm living. And he sold me on my first bit of hope here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they started taking me to meetings, and I stayed with them. And I would work back in L.A., and I'd come back in the evening, and I did the 6 o'clock and the 10.30 meeting at night and the midnight meeting and go back to work, and I'd come back the next night. People stopped gathering around my desk. So what'd you do this weekend? Well, I drove up to Lancaster. I did the 6 o'clock. Then I did the 8 (laughs) o'clock. Then we went to dinner. I did the midnight meeting. And then on Saturday, I went to the morning meeting. And after a month of that, it was like, nobody's even coming around my desk anymore because they don't care. They're like, ugh. That's no fun. And I started hanging around the rooms of Alcoholic Anonymous. And I'm telling you, I hung around the rooms. I didn't hang around the sober people, the good people, because I got engaged at three weeks of sobriety. (laughs) Ladies, if you're new, it doesn't work. (laughs) I needed him. (laughs) I didn't like him, but I needed him. And so anyway, I'm hanging with the boys because the women know my story. They know what kind of woman I am, and I'm not hanging out with you people. So I'm hanging out with the boys, but there were some of them that were getting sponsorship from the book. And I'm not getting that. I asked this woman to be my sponsor. I go to her house, and she starts telling me all of your juicy stuff. I got all of everybody's juicy stuff. I'm like, oh, my God. Because, see, I'm not going to tell you about the men and the maggots and the 50 bags of garbage going on in my life. Those are like secrets I'm keeping till the very end. And she's freely sharing all of your stuff with me. And I'm scared to death. So I start hanging out. And so I go to an old timer. I'm like, you know a woman who uses the book who can take me through the steps? Yeah, honey, here you go. Vicky. No. (laughs) No, I'm not calling. So I suffer a while longer. I go to another man. I go like, do you know a woman who uses the book who can take me through the steps? He goes, yeah, honey, here you go. Vicky. Dang it! Hate that chick. And I was certain she sponsored every woman in AA. She had eight years of sobriety. So I had a whole pitch of why she needed to sponsor me. And when I was done, she said, I'd be happy to, Marion, and you're a real alcoholic, and if you want to stay sober, you're going to have to take these steps. And you go to meetings early and stay late and stick out your hand to people with less time and empty ashtrays and wipe down tables and make and pour coffee and never turn down an AA request. Okay. I don't even want to be here with you people, but I'm desperate. I got the problem of the newcomer. God, tell me what to do. Stop telling me what to do. <laughs> tell me, what do I got to do? Stop telling me what to do. You know, it's like, that's, you got that struggle going on, and I'm so desperate that she tells me I have to do these things. And I said, okay. And I started coming to meetings. And we sat down and we read the doctor's opinion. And for the first time in my life, I understood what it meant to be alcoholic. Because, see, I'm no longer drinking at the nightclubs. I'm drinking at the captain's chair. It's a dump of a bar squished between two body shops on Oxnard Street in Van Nuys. Loved it. We were talking about a dumpy bar. 
earlier tonight. Love the dumps. And people go, I think you're a drunk. Yeah, I'm a drunk. Big deal. Who cares? But I don't know what it means to be alcoholic. When I read the doctor's opinion with my sponsor and she explained that to me, I'm physically and bodily, mental, mentally and physically bodily different than my fellows. Because see, what's happening is I'm going to, my head says, you can have just two. Stay away from the tequila. Eat dinner first. <laughs> and then I have a drink. Then I have one drink, then I have three drinks, and I got eight Long Island iced teas up later, right? And I'm like, oh my God, I never knew what was wrong with me. But I'm bodily and mentally different than my fellows. And it says countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. It doesn't say a few. Hundreds of experiences have shown why I can't have just one drink. But I never knew it until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm like, oh my God. But then I can't tell you my life is unmanageable because now I've cleaned up pretty good. I'm paying my bills because I'm showing up to work. I'm getting full paychecks. I'm not partying at your house all weekend and then whipping my clothes out of the car on Monday going, yep, I can wear this. I'm showing up to work like this and just pulling my hair back that I'm unshowered and then for three days. That's how I was doing. So I'm starting to look better and I'm starting to clean up some of that wreckage. And my sponsor's trying to talk to me about my life being unmanageable. I'm like, no, it's not. She says, Marianne, your life is so unmanageable. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Everything is going well. See, because what happens at, at nine months of sobriety, I got the great idea to go on a cruise with a girlfriend. And she's a drinker, and that's okay. Because I had enough of step one knowing that it's the insidious insanity of the first drink, and it was the greatest moment that ever happened in my entire sobriety, and I'll tell you why. We're on this cruise, and she said, you could probably drink. I said, oh, yes, the first night, and maybe even the second night, but the third night, I'm going to be hanging naked from the flagpole, and she's like, oh, <laughs> because she doesn't know how I drink, right? So we're on our way to the casino, and she stops to order a Kahlua and cream. Kahlua is one of the few drinks I drank for taste, and I'm watching that cream mix through that drink. I'm like, ooh, I want a drink. Oh, my God, I want a sip. Oh, man, if I could just lick that straw. <laughs> I closed my eyes. I grabbed the bar, and I said, my name's Mary, and I'm an alcoholic. God help me. I don't want to drink because there is nothing between me and that drink, nothing. And I knew at that moment I needed God's help. And we went to the casino, and I said, Cindy, I'll be right back. And I got my big book out, and I read Chapter 3, more about alcoholism, the insidious insanity of the first drink. But then I met him while I'm on vacation. <laughs> And I'm engaged to be married. <laughs> and I had sex with that man. And I had to come home. I had to tell my sponsor. And I had to tell that man what I'd done. And I said, Vicki, what do I got to do? And she said, it's about time. See, because I might not be drinking or doing nothing else, but nothing in my life has changed. I'm doing exactly what I've done my entire life at the expense of everybody in my life, which is what I've always done. She said, it's about time. Then we had to go to step two. My sponsor was a fundamentalist, born-again Christian. We called her Jesus' little ray of sunshine. <laughs> she was so nice. And I'd watch her, and I'm like, so how are you getting through this? She goes, with God's help. I'm like, whatever. You know, that's not, that's not, I don't understand that. And she's talking to me about her conception of God, and she's giving me we agnostics, and I'm listening to you, and I don't get that. My folks made me go to church as a kid, and I saying Jesus loves me, it means nothing to me. I have no conception whatsoever. Probably because I took that quarter, hopped the wall, went to thrifty ice cream, about triple scoop ice cream cones instead of hearing the message of God's love. I don't know. 
but I don't know anything about God. I don't have any feeling toward him. I have not even a conception of God. So I started going to book studies, and my sponsor had given me We Agnostics. I said, Vicki, I don't get it. She says, read it again. I don't get it. Read it again. I don't get it. She's like, read it again. I read that sucker 20 times. I was in three book studies a week at that time, and one week all three book studies were on We Were Agnostics. And there it was. It says, when we were driven to AA by a self-imposed crisis, we could neither postpone nor evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that God is either everything or else he is nothing. He either is or he isn't. What do you choose? Well, I believe that God was. So that meant God was everything. But the next paragraph says, arrived at this point, we're squarely confronted with the question of faith. It talks about stepping off that bridge of reason to the shore of faith. And I can't do that. My sponsor says, Marion, you got to step off that bridge. I can't. She goes, Marion, come on, you've got to do this. I can't. I know my life is a mess. I know every area of my life is a mess, but it's all I've ever known. And you're asking me to step onto something else that I have no knowledge of. I go, Vicki, I can't do it. She goes, Marion, you're going to have to do it. And at some point I became willing enough to give off that bridge of reason and to the shore of faith. And my sponsor came over and we did the third step prayer. And it was the first time I've ever prayed on my knees out loud with another human being in my life. And I cried. And then she says, now it's time to do an inventory, Marion. And it says, our, you know, our resentments, our fear, and our sex conduct. So the resentment, I love it. It says, you know, you do the three call-ins and we look at it. We see that the world and its people really dominated us. No wonder I don't like Mark. Yeah, he should be on that list. <laughs> Jerk, right? And it says, that's as far as most of us got. So I listed the people, institutions, and principles with whom I was angry. And I got that all done, and then I looked at it. Because it says, we look at it, and we look at it from an entirely different point of view. We see that people perhaps who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. So I started praying. I took every single resentment on that list, and I started praying. And I prayed the resentment prayer. God saved me from being angry. Help me to treat them with the same patience, pity, and tolerance I would cheerfully grant a sick friend. And I started practicing this. And so when I could look at somebody as being perhaps spiritually sick like myself, it kind of took the heat off of them. Then when I was done with that, and it says, for now we resolutely look for our own mistakes. My mistakes? Never do I add any. I'm selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and frightened. And I'd listed those. And behind every resentment, I got the word fear bracketed alongside. Fear, fear, fear. Just like the book. And it says it's an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of my existence is shot through with it. I looked up the word evil in my dictionary. It says to bring sorrow. And it's an evil and corroding. Heck, I had enough wardrobe malfunction when I was out there. I don't need a corroding thread in my fabric right now, <laughs> right? And so I started listing those fears. And I'm so driven by fears and I don't even know. I have no idea. I'm so worried about what you think about me. I'm so worried I don't even fit in my own family. I try to live up to expectations of what people want me to be or what I think I should be. And it drives me to turn into who it is that I need to be at that moment. That you don't love me enough. I need to do these things so you can be, so I can be a part of you. And I'm so driven by this. And when I got those done, I did the prayer for the fear. And it says, we ask God to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. At once we commence to outgrow fear. But he'd have me be. I do a lot. But what would God have me be? And then I listed my sex conduct. And what I really liked about that, if you were a woman like me, is that it says for my future sex conduct. 
So I got to have a clean slate here in Alcoholics Anonymous because I was engaged at three weeks of sobriety and I had a sponsor I learned to keep my panties up. Because what happens is I know how to sleep around the bars, but I don't want to do, I don't want, I want to be a different woman here in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to have a different life today. And so I did what the women told me to do and how to do that. And I did this inventory. And then my sponsor came over and she sold me on my second bit of hope because when I came over here, when I got my conception of God, I was crying to her about the kind of woman I came to you as. And I am a broken woman when I get here. And I'm just sobbing and I just feel so bad. And she said, Mary, she says, sometimes only God can comfort the soul. So why don't you ask if you could curl up on his lap and let him put his arms around you? So you all who, the older people remember laughing from the 70s and Edith Ann in that giant rocking chair, that became my conception of God because I'm a grandmother now and I hold that granddaughter very close and I rock her and I, she feels loved and protected. And so that became my conception of God. And so she said that he loved me and he forgave me. So by the time I did this inventory, I knew that God loved me and, be, and he forgave me. So I started working on this inventory, and then my sponsor came over, and I love the fist up because it says, we made it to God, ourselves, and another human being. It was the first time I was available to God, and it was the first time I was ever vulnerable to another human being. I told her everything about me. It was seven hours, and I think I cried every hour, the entire seven hours. There was this overwhelming feeling of just purging. And I got done, and she gave me the instructions, what it says. It says, we take down the book, and we pray from the bottom of our heart that we got to know him better. And it tells me what I'm going to do. And it tells me these promises. And one of the promises says that our fears fall from us. We can look the world in the eye, and we are a perfect peace and ease. And I tell people that the silence was deafening. Because as I laid there for that hour, for the first time, I don't have all that chatter going on in my head. My sponsor comes back, and she says, so are you ready to do step six? I said, yes. She says, entirely ready? I said, no. I mean, who's entirely ready, right? So I want these character defects removed from me that are apparent to you. But what about the subtle ones? What was your name? Who read the 12 traditions? Christiane. See her walk up here? She's tall. She's thin. Bitch. <laughs> so kind of, I got envy going on in my heart, and you don't know about it. And there are women that are either new or even got time. And I see you walk by, and I'm like, well, what, she thinks she's some model? And you could be dying, and I can't get off my rear end to help you. And I'll tell you how sick it was. I used to go to this morning meeting at 6.30 in the meeting, and the sun was out, and the lights were all on, and there's a guy sitting there with his sunglasses. I look at that dude, and I'm like, that guy is so hip, slick, and sick. Would you look at him? Blah, 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 blah. Then he got up with his cane. <laughs> because I'm judgmental. And you don't even know. I don't even know the whole story, and I got a whole judgmental story about what's going on. Now I'm ready to have these things removed because they've kept me separated from you and from God my entire life. So my sponsor came over and we got on our knees and I did the seven-step prayer. And I have to start practicing the opposite of my character defects. When I'm rude, I got to be kind. When I'm stingy, I got to be generous. When I'm impatient, I got to practice patience. Things, qualities that I don't come to Alcoholics Anonymous with. I don't have those traits when I get to the rooms. And now I have to begin practicing. If I'm asking God to remove the defects, 
I have to replace them with assets. And I start removing them. So now i got to go out and make amends. Well, how do you make amends for some of these things? I had to look to see how I hurt you emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, and financially. And I made a list of the people I'd harmed. Because how do I get back to my parents that emotional security I robbed? Every night my parents laid in bed worrying about me. Every night. How do you give that back? That's my question. I can give the money I robbed back. But how do I give back that to my parents? How do I give back that well-being that I robbed from them for so long? Right? So I make this list and I go out to make these amends to the people I'd harmed. I'm going to tell you one. I just made it. It's been almost two years now. It was my seventh grade teacher. <sighs> my mother is on the board to the community concert series. And she says, you want to go? They're going to have, I got a business meeting and then we're going to have a pianist and a barbecue. Free food, pianist. Yeah, I'll go. Yeah, I'm happy. I like that. Yeah, I'll go with you. So we go to this beautiful home, and the woman answers the door, and my mother introduces me, and she's vaguely familiar, but I can't place her. She gives me her name, and I, hey. And I sit through this board meeting with them, and then we go out into the back, and there's a, a barbecue going on, and I'm sitting at a table with these women, and they call her by her maiden name. She had just married the gentleman of the house, and they called her Miss Maven. <gasps> Miss Maven, seventh grade teacher, Parkview Junior High? And they said Yes. I go, oh, and my mother says, is this not good? I'm like, oh, no, this is not good at all. <laughs> so now is not the place. So I asked my mother to give me Miss Maven's number, and she doesn't want to give it to me. She's, like, worried, I think, because this is her reputation in the community. So we're at a community concert thing, and I point her out to my husband. I said, there's Miss Maven, my seventh-grade teacher. I owe her an amends. He said, Marion, you know. She'd go make amends. I said, except wherever possible. I said, David, this is not the forum, and she's visiting with somebody. But then we have intermission, and Miss Maven is standing on the wall by herself. I'm going to go make the approach. I'm going to introduce myself. I'm telling her why there, and then I'm going to invite her for coffee. I go out. I start talking to her, and it just comes out. I said, I was your student 39 years ago. And I was horrible. I undermined everything you did, and I put you through hell, and I'm so sorry, and I robbed you of having that experience of teaching the students. And I just went through this whole thing. And she looked at me, and she goes, oh, how long ago was this? And I said, um, 39 years ago. She goes, that was my first year of teaching. <laughs> I robbed a woman of her first year. I sponsor a couple of teachers, and I know how they feel about their students. I did everything to undermine that woman. And I stood before her, and I said, I, I am so sorry. I said, I need, to, I need to make some amends to you. And she put her hand up on my cheek, and she said, Honey, you don't owe me any amends. I can see God's love written all over your face. And I started to cry. 39 years in the making. And she could see God's love on me. So the 10th step, continue to take personal inventory when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. I'm going to tell you about a couple things first. What I like about it, it says in there, it's easy to rest up on the spiritual program of action, and we are trouble if we do for alcohol as a subtle foe. At seven years of sobriety, and again at 13, I'm complacent. I don't want to go to that meeting and hear you share again. That Mike guy speaking tonight, forget it. I am not going. Mm -mm. I'll call my sponsor tomorrow. God, I'm busy. Survivor's on. Whew. And things are swimmingly well. I am not going to that meeting tomorrow to see Chris taught. No. Mm -mm. I'll call my sponsor later. God, I'm busy. Season finale. Things are swimmingly well. And one day I wake up and I'm in a world of crap, and I've been in a world of crap for a very long time. 
See, I let the life that AA gave me get in the way of my AA life. I've been given this fantastic life here in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and now AA does not become the most important thing in my life. And again, at 13 years, and I called a woman I hardly knew, and I said, Cindy, I'm in trouble. She said, are you drinking? I said, not yet. I had that much humility, enough to pick up the phone and ask for help. Again, at 13 years of sobriety, I did the same thing. Since that time, I am actively sponsored. I am active in four meetings a week. I um, am the cupcake for my home group. I'm on my convention committee. I was my inner group rep for two years. I wrote the AA newsletter in our area from our central office for two and a half years. I have four H&I commitments inside the institutions. And uh, for me, if I'm not in AA, I'm on my way out the door of AA. And now I'm just talking for me. Because if I'm not doing everything, I might as well be doing nothing. So that's in the 10th step. But it also says, you know, we continue to take personal inventory. I worked at this law firm when I got sober, and I had to go work for this guy, and he and I didn't get along. And my boss said, uh, you're working for the enemy. And I said, I don't know. Some things have changed. I could probably work with Bob now. And I'm working with Bob, and I got this uh, check, a uh, uh, royalty check for like $1.22. And I go, well, what do you want me to do with that? He goes, I want you to put it in the bank and split it in the client trust account, 60-40. I'm like, geez, Bob, you really are Jewish, aren't you? And he was mad. And I'm like, I'm sorry. But that's not good enough. And I got home and I called my sponsor. I said, I cannot believe what I just said to that man. What do I got to do? So my sponsor gave me some direction and I went back into the office in the morning. I said, Bob, can I talk to you for a moment? And he wasn't really happy to see me. And I closed the door and I said, I make jokes all the time at people's expense. And the worst kind of joke I can make is a stereotypical joke. And the joke I made is that Jews are cheap. And I'm so sorry. Can you please forgive me? And what could I do to set this right? And he said, Marion, you know, my parents were in Nazi concentration camps. And my mother is still alive. And I'd like you to come. I'd like her to come in and meet with you. So he brings his mother into the office. And she's got the, she's got the tattoo up on her arm. And I met his mother. When I'm 18 months sober, I'm trying to buy my first house. And I don't have enough of a down payment. And he goes, Marion, you are not the same woman who used to work, work here. He goes, I'd like to loan you that money so you can get your first home. Here is a man who has no reason to give me anything. But because of Alcoholics Anonymous, my life has changed and I can come back and make things right with him. That he loans me the money that I can get my first house here in Alcoholics Anonymous. So the 11th step, sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God. I told you I don't have a conscious contact. I don't even know anything. And in the morning I'm praying, God, keep me sober. At the end of the day, it was thank you, God. Then I start praying for selfish ends. Okay, don't let my sister wreck the car. And I hope I get that raise, God. I really need that raise. And if you could do that for me, that would be great. And then I start laughing. I'm like, my God, I'm even selfish when I pray. (laughs) And I start laughing. I'm like, I need to start this thing over. And I started learning how to pray. And I prayed for specifics of things that are problematic. God, help me to do these things. Because of myself, I can't do them. So I'm going to tell you a couple stories about that. So, um, and then meditation, I never had that peace long enough that I could practice that prayer and meditation. So I worked with that girl at this job, and she had purple hair and nose rings and tattoos, and her name was Laura. I hated that chick. Hated her. And she sat next to me, and she tied, and she'd bump her knee. Oh, oh, and I'm like, look at her. Like, she does not exist in my world. I hate that broad. And I'd drive home. I hate that chick. And I'd go to bed thinking about Laura. I'd wake up, and I'd sit, because all I got to think about is I got eight hours with Laura. And my sponsor said, you know, why don't you pray? God, obviously Laura's a sick person. Help, 
help me to be kind and thoughtful and loving toward her today. So I started praying. Now all of a sudden I could say, hey, Laura, yes, you want to go to lunch? I'd love to. And then I stopped praying. I hate this chick. God. And I found out that prayer was persistent and consistent. And for seven and a half years I worked at that job, I prayed every day to be kind and loving and tolerant toward Laura. So I now, uh, I don't know how many years sober I am, probably about 20 years sober. And my sponsor, when I was new, had given me a book. And I go to go get it for one of my girls for her birthday. And my mantra is, be still and know that I'm God. When I do my meditation, right, I'm going to tell you a couple stories about that. I'm like, I sit in my backyard. It's green. It's not brown. Thank God. It's the only thing in green in Lancaster. And I sit there, and I sit in the grass. And my big, goofy dog named Wally waits for me and because uh, he's going to get a brushing. And I sit there, and I... And I use be still and know that I'm God. And I clear myself. And I feel the sun on my face and the wind in my hair. And I can hear the chimes in the wind. There's a dog down the street. And I think about the 11-step prayer. And when I'm done with that, I start brushing my dog, Wally. And then all of a sudden, i got to call her. Oh, i got to get to the bank. What time do I got to do that? What time is that meeting? All of a sudden, everything is rushing back in. And I'm brushing my dog, and he's sitting there, and then he lays there, and then he turns his face toward the sun. And he has this giant smile on his face. And I realize that my dog is in the present. He's right now in the presence of God. And it stopped me because at any time I want, I can stop and be in the presence. I just have to be able to do it. I just have to recognize that all this stuff keeps me separated. So I go to buy this book for my girl, and uh, so the, the book is on the bottom. I can't find the book I'm buying her, but on the bottom is a book that says, um, Be Still and Know That I'm God, 31 Days for a Deeper, More Reflective Prayer and Meditative Life. I go, well, that's for me, right? And I can't buy the book. I can't find the book I'm buying her, so I'm looking around, and so I have to stand in line. There's one girl working at the store, and there's a line, so I start thumbing through the book. Nah. No. Get the book. You don't need the book. Mary, just get the book. It's $15. You don't really need the book. You have a good prayer and meditative life. You don't really need that book, right? And then I'm standing there. Thank God that girl was a long time because it says, for those of you who think you have prayer and meditation down pat, step over to the nearest mirror and see what real denial looks like. I bought the book <laughs> because who am I to think that I can't grow deeper in my prayer and meditative life. Every time I think I have the answer, I get myself in a world of hurt. So when I do my 11-step prayer, I think of the St. Francis of Assisi prayer that's here listed in this book. And I pray for that, and I pray for the, the people in my life, and how can I be of service? How can I bring light when there's darkness? How can I bring truth when there's injustice? How can I do these things? And ask God to make me a channel of that. So my husband and I had a very good friend, Steve, um, who uh, we went to conventions together, we golfed together, we go to Vegas together, we go to meetings together, and he got um, stricken with um, mesothelioma, lung cancer, asbestos-related lung cancer. And he lived with his elderly mother and his children weren't in his life. And I said, honey, you don't get to do this alone. We're going to go with you. So he started, he'd call me up when he had to do chemo. They put a stint in, and, and he'd call me up. He goes, Marion, could you come sit with me? And I'm like, yep, it's four hours, right? So I had long hair at the time. I said, Steve, you know, when you lose your hair, I'm going to cut my hair off. He goes, whatever. So I'm going with Steve, and, um, and I'd sit in the chemo room with him while he'd get four hours worth of chemo. And uh, So after he, his first round of chemo, he lost a lot of his hair, so I cut my hair off to shoulder length. And um, then he was starting his second round of chemo, 
And he says, Marion, i got to start chemo. Can you come? I said, yep, I'll be there today, and I'll be over there. And so when I was there, he had a ball cap on and all the people who make the cancer beanies because it gets cold in Lancaster in the in the winter. And he goes, i got to try one of these on. And he takes his ball cap off, and all he's got is little patches of hair on his head. And I left chemo that day, and I went down to the barber shop, and I had him shave my head. And I showed up the next day for chemo with a little beanie myself on top of my head. So I sat across from him in that little chemo room, and I said, so are you ready? And he said, yeah, and I whipped that beanie off, and I'm sitting there naked, bald head. He goes, man, you look old. <laughs> oh, you don't know at that point whether you love him or you hate him. I'm like, are you kidding me? I just shaved my head. And so as Steve lay dying in that hospital room, and I went up there, and, um, and I prayed that morning, what could I do for him? Because it's better to comfort than to be comforted, to love than to love. And I asked God what I could do. And everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous in my area knows I don't hug the men. I shake hands, including my dear friend Steve. Everybody got a handshake. So I'm there, and he's struggling to sit up, and he's trying to lean over that table, and he's moaning. And I said, honey, would you like a back rub? He looks at me and goes, really? And I go, yeah. He goes, oh, Mary, that'd be good. So he leans over his table, and I crawl up in his hospital bed, and I start rubbing his back. And I just give him a back rub, and we just talk. The next day I come into that hospital, I go, honey, would you like a back rub? He goes, oh, that'd be good. And he'd lean forward. I'd crawl up in that bed, and I'd give him a back rub. I came home, and I told my husband, I said, I gave Steve a back rub. He said, I wouldn't have expected anything less. The third day I'm walking into that hospital room. He's struggling to sit up. I'm like, geez, I'm not even in the room yet. God. You know, when Steve passed, I reflected on that, and I was so grateful that I had the opportunity to do that. And I was really grateful, and I prayed, and I thought, God, thank you for allowing me to be able to give that to someone else. And I was really grateful, and then I realized that I did nothing. It was my friend. He was 90 pounds. He was a sack of bones. And our friendship was strong enough that he had no ego involved whatsoever, that he would allow me to touch him, that he would allow me to give him the gift of love. And I knew that the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous was working in my life. The 12th step, having had a spiritual experience, how do I get from living in a maggot-infested apartment to standing here in, at Pine Lake in Seattle, Washington? We tried to carry this message and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Now, I went on my first H&I panel at 30 Days Sober. I'm with this big guy named Jay in a big old red pickup truck, and I'm all cutesy. I don't know anything about staying sober. He goes, that's right. You don't. You know about getting loaded. You talk about that. Talked about coming to AA, smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, and running my mouth, and I don't know anything about staying sober. I'm just doing what they told me to do. And I started doing what they told me to do. And I got hooked on the feeling of carrying the message. And I had my first ones were my boys up at Camp Scudder. They were 15, 16, and 17-year-old boys. I'm like, what do I have in common with them? But what happened to me was I would feel good for an hour and a half while I'm with those boys. And then all that craziness would come back. And then the next time I went, I liked the way it made me feel. I ended up with six H&I panels. Because for an hour and a half, I thought about somebody other than myself. And I started carrying the message. I've been going to Tehachapi Prison and Lancaster State Prison since 1989. I go in and carry the message to the men in those rooms. And I don't have any fear about that. I go into minimum, medium, and maximum security prison. And I walk in there, and sometimes I go by myself. And so they opened a new yard at Tehachapi State Prison. It's a, um, it's a level three yard. And they said, well, you're going to have to wear a vest. I'm like, okay. I think it's the handicap vest because the handicapped men, the disabled, have to wear a vest 
because they can't comply either. They can't hear if there's an alarm and alarm and you got to get on the ground or physically unable. So I'm like, that's cool. So then they slide these Kevlar vests across the counter. I'm like, you're kidding. He goes, no, they like to stick people here. All right. So we wear these Kevlar vests. And they fit me just perfect. They come to here and they fill me up. My friend Diane is smaller and petiter than I am. And we're sitting there. And then our friend Tony is a big guy like you. It comes right below his breast. And his whole side's open. I'm like, oh, my God, would you look at him? He's a sitting duck. <laughs> and she goes, yes, but Marion, our neck or our eye. They could take our eye. <laughs> I, my name is Marion. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I go, I could be the pirate AA. <laughs> I have never, ever in 24 years of carrying the message inside the institution, and I love my men. I will do anything for them. I have found them people upon contact, upon release, that have worked with them, that have been with them, and to see the success. And when I go to a meeting sometimes in Los Angeles, and they're like, hi, remember me from Tehachapi? And seeing the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous work in their life. And all we do is by carrying the message, one alcoholic talking to another. So I'm going to tell you about what my life is like today. I met my husband in sobriety, my husband number three. Um, I don't date men in AA, and I don't date men with children. I don't have children of my own, and I don't want yours. Children are expensive, demanding, and time-consuming. <laughs> Turns out that was me, but I don't know that. And he had sole custody of his children, and I watched him in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Though I chat, I watch, and I pay attention, and I listen. And he was a man with integrity, because he went to the women and asked, how do you braid their hair? And you women taught him how to braid his daughter's hair. And you taught him how to make a menu so he could provide healthy meals for his daughters. And I watched that man, and I was very surprised when he showed an interest in me, because I don't attract men with integrity in my life. And he's got the most integrity I've ever met in anybody ever in my life. And so we dated for six years. We didn't shack up. We didn't live together, which is something new. We wanted to set a good example for his daughters. And so when we got married six years later, they were 14 and 18. And the youngest is living in the house with us. They moved into my house, and she's sitting on my couch like this. I'm saying, honey, what's wrong? She goes, I'm afraid that my dad loves you more than you love him, and you're going to leave like my mother did. And I said, honey, as poorly as you and your sister have treated me over the years, if I didn't love your dad, I would have left a long time ago. <laughs> And she's like, okay. <laughs> so I watched this girl grow up, and, uh, you know, we had some guidelines in our family, and she couldn't date till she was 16. And one day I'm vacuuming, and my husband says, Laura has a date. I said, she can't date till she's 16. He goes, she's 17. I'm like, well, when did that happen? <laughs> because I'm watching them grow up right before me. And then she got a job, and she took a job, and she got some traveling experience out of it. And she called us on our first trip, and they sent her terrible. They sent her to L.A., to Phoenix, to New Mexico, to El Paso, all in one day to get her to, to Dallas. I don't know why they couldn't fly her, but it was a long day. And so she kept us posted every way that trip. And so I called the hotel where she was staying, and I said, I'd like to do something nice for her. Could you do this for me? And they said, yes. So when she arrived at 11 o'clock that night, there was cookies and a glass of milk with a note that says, we are so proud of you. Enjoy your first business trip. Love, Daddy and Marion. Because you guys taught me how to do that. Because she knew we were with her. My oldest daughter, problem. She's been a wedge between her father and I, and that's one of the reasons we didn't get married sooner. Everything, she, she was me with my seventh grade teacher. She tried to undermine everything. 
And we have bailed her out countless, countless, countless times. And it was exhausting. And finally, we cut her off. And then her sister supported her for about a year until she was done. She was going to marry an alcoholic boyfriend who beat her. And now she's, you know, so she, her sister cuts her off. She meets a new boy. Two weeks later, she quits her job to take care of his two handicapped children. Two weeks later, she comes up with a pair of baby booties. And I am not happy. And I can't get over this. Because I'm so driven by fear that this girl who has never completed anything in our lives, in her life, is going to now have this baby that she, uh, with a guy she's met in six weeks and dumping on us, and we're going to have to raise this baby, and I'm not happy. And then the story is very icky, and I'm not going to get into the ickiness of how icky it is, but I was at a girlfriend's house in Texas, and I get the news, and I start crying, and I'm like just livid, and I call my sponsor. She says, when are you coming home? I said, on Monday. And I did an inventory, and I met with her on Thursday, and I shared a fifth step with her. And so my sponsor gave me some direction, and I took some action, and three weeks later, or a couple weeks later, I write her a note, a congratulatory note for her and the baby and him. He's the icky guy. That's all he's ever going to be. That's as best as it's going to get, trust me. So she comes over with the video of the baby. And I said, did you get my note? And I said, no. She said, no. I said, well, I sent it like three weeks ago. She goes, yeah, I haven't even got the mail in three weeks. Right? And she tells me she's different. And now I'm getting so spiritually sick, I can't even stand myself. I can't. All I think about is this, and I'm so angry about it. And it's not even them, it's me. And finally I get on my knees and I said, God, help me. Help me to focus on this baby and help me to love her. Let me get out of this problem. And so I got my little granddaughter in February of last year. She got bright red hair and big blue eyes. I call her Princess Ginger Spice Cake Girl. <laughs> and she loves the memes. I don't do diapers. My husband loves children. Um, he goes, well, you pick up dog poop. I'm like, yeah, but that's with a shovel. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> but she loves hanging with the memes, and we have a really good time. And I am so grateful for the capacity of love that I found a way to get past the ickiness of what the whole entire situation was and to be able to love this baby exactly as she is. And I'm so grateful for that, and you guys have taught me that. My sister, I'd never had children, so when my niece Lauren was born, she invited me to be there in labor and delivery. She's all strapped down because she had to have a cesarean section, and I went in, and I'm talking, and I'm cooing to her, and I'm rubbing her arm. And then I'm like, oh, my God, here she comes, Janice. And then here comes Lauren, and I watched the miracle of birth. And afterwards, my sister said, oh, you were so loving. I was so surprised. I'm like, <laughs> come on. I don't know what she was expecting. And when Lauren was eight months old, they um, moved to Tennessee. My sister took a job promotion and moved to Tennessee. And so I would call once a week, twice a week, and I'd call up and I'd talk to her and my nephew. i go, hey, and i call her. Her official name is Lauren Raquel Spellinghauer, Hannah Montana, rock star, oh, willy-nilly, cupcake disaster. <laughs> I'm like, hey, cupcake. And she'd go, hi. What are you doing? Lauren? Are you there? But I called. I called every week. And we developed this relationship, and I would fly back to Tennessee and hook up with her and have this relationship. And when she was starting kindergarten, she called me up. She goes, hi, Auntie Marion. I'm like, who's this? 
And with the breathlessness of a five-year-old, she goes, next week I start kindergarten, and Mama took me to mall to get a backpack, and I found a, cup, a backpack with cupcakes all over it. You're going to love it. <laughs> and I started to cry, because I am going to love it. And no matter how far away that little girl is, I've developed this relationship because you've shown me that. My family, who weren't even speaking to me after I got sober because promises from a girl like me are awfully cheap. And they waited and waited and waited. I call my parents every day, except Saturdays, unless I'm gone or they're gone. And I call every day to check on them. My father comes over every Monday through Friday and has a cup of coffee with me. And I don't answer my phone if you call me in the morning when my dad's there because I want to spend time with my folks. My oldest niece just got married, and my whole family's there, and uh, it's a big Armenian wedding. My sister-in-law's Armenian, and my 83-year-old dad is out there dancing. And if you've ever seen Elaine Bennis from Seinfeld dance, just picture me as Elaine. <laughs> I'm, like, totally lame. And my little dad's out there, 83, just boogieing all on his own. And I've lost the coolness factor a long time ago here in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I walked out on that dance floor with my father. YMCA. Because you know what? These moments are precious, and they're not going to last forever. So I seize those moments because you've shown me how to do that. My life is so rich because of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got here at 26 years old, and I am washed up. This is over. I will never have a good time. I said to my sponsor, I said, technically, Vicki, my life expectancy is 76. That's 50 years. I cannot not drink for 50 years. She goes, no, you can't. I said, I know. What am I going to do? She says, Marion, you're going to do this thing one day at a time. That's all I've ever had to do is one day at a time. You know, at the end of all meetings in California, we read a vision for you. It says, um, uh, great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. These are the great events that have passed in my life. And they may not mean anything to anybody here, but they mean everything to me. They are my life. I could have missed it with one more drink. I could not have made it if I had one more drink. I would not be blessed with the life that I have today. So if you're new, I know nobody raised their hand with being 30 days or less or 24 hours or less. If you're new, please stay. I hope tonight that I've showed you what Alcoholics Anonymous has done on my life, and I hope you keep coming back because I need you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.